Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most hideous, the most heinous, the most brutal high-profile homicide cases occurring in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. As I stated for season, season nine, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. That is the scripture in Romans uh, 12, 19 through 21, or Deuteronomy 32, 35, depending on whatever Bible you're using. And cold, and basically, uh, vengeance or revenge is the topic for this particular season. They say that revenge is a dish served cold, and these next cases of revenge murders, they did not fail to deliver just that. These next cases of revenge homicides occurring in Merlin, they had a clear motive of revenge or basically, I'm going to pay you back for whatever I feel that you did to me. That type of motive. Some people, they just cannot let shit go. And they would rather happily spend the rest of their lives in prison than to just let things go and move on. They gotta get even. And this episode's case of revenge homicide that I'm going to profile is the revengeful murder committed by 42-year-old Anne Marie Anastasi, 18-year-old Gabriel Ezekiel Struss, and his 13-year-old girlfriend, which was Anne's daughter. And just like I've done in every single episode of this podcast, a portion of this podcast will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because uh, it's now considered basically a cold case. And every single episode of this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides, that may have received a lot of attention and notoriety. On the flip side, this podcast also has a goal in assisting in any unsolved homicide, no matter how small it may seem, that needs to be solved. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 19-year-old Trey Scotland. Now, let me tell y'all something. Speaking of revenge, revenge and vengeance is one thing in general, but it, it's it's nothing. There is nothing, nothing in this world like a woman scorned. Trust me, nothing. The rage of a scorned woman is totally unmatched and nothing, absolutely nothing can tame it. Years ago, I ain't gonna lie, R. Kelly had a song out called When a Woman's Fed Up. He was like, there ain't nothing you can do about it. And he was like, if you ever get her back, it'll never be the same. She cutting the corners of her eyes every time she see your face. I say all that to say this. That's what leads me to this next case of double homicide right here. Men. How much do y'all think a wife... A woman, how much you, how much y'all think she can take? How much do y'all think y'all can keep putting her through bullshit after bullshit after bullshit after bullshit 
before she just snaps. Like I said in the last episode, marriage, it's not easy. And it ain't for sissies. And it's, it's, it's normal, from what I hear, after a period of time, I guess, you pretty much get bored with each other. You might even get sick of them at some point. Sick of the way your husband or your wife look. Sick of the way they smell. Their mannerisms. Everything. From what I hear, this is normal. And I guess the only difference is that, you know, some married people, they push through all that boredom and whatever. And and being sick of their partner. And eventually the original love that they felt for each other is supposed to come back or be revived, whatever. And then it's like, you know, the couples who get counseling when they have issues. There's the married couples who think that open marriages or inviting a third person into your marriage is the answer. Because they're bored sexually or whatever. I mean, I'm not married no more, but I'm like this. How could that ever work? 42-year-old Anne-Marie Anastasia. If I'm pronouncing her last name wrong, I'm doing the best I can. Anastasia and her husband, 40-year-old Anthony Joseph Anastasia Jr. They were a normal married couple who made a life for themselves and they settled in Michigan. The couple had five kids together who all lived with them and um, married life eventually became boring. After a number of years being together, um, they were bored. And I guess to spice things up, the couple agreed to inviting a somewhat stranger of a homemade sex slave, basically, for both of them to use into their bedroom. Really? And y'all wonder why I'm not married. Anyway, yeah, y'all heard me right. So they basically had like um, a, a sex slave that lived with them. Um, for both of them to use into their bedroom. So they kept all of this up while they lived in Michigan. And eventually Anne got sick and tired of that. And the couple moved to Maryland. And, you know, what Anne didn't plan on was that her husband would be moving their mistress. Her name was 25-year-old Jacqueline Irene Riggs. He didn't, she didn't plan on him moving her to Maryland to live with them in this house. Jacqueline decided that she had feelings for Anne's husband, Anthony. And Anthony realized that in so many words, he had feelings for his mistress too. And Anne thought that the move to Maryland would mean like the end of all this ridiculous with Jacqueline. But the move to Maryland was just the beginning, basically. Anne and Anthony had been married for about 18 long years before introducing a third party to their marriage. But instead of that third person spicing up their sex life, Anthony started not feeling his wife no more. No pun intended. And during the summer of 2015, Anthony moved Jacqueline in their new home in Maryland in the 600 block of West Bay Front Road in Lothian, um in Anne Arundel County. Anne ain't like that shit not one bit, trust me. I mean, would you? But she allowed Jacqueline to live in their basement of their new home as some sort of living sex slave. I, I, I cannot make this stuff up, but over time, Anne became less and less of 
a partner um and it became like more of an anthony and jacqueline situation especially after joseph would get out of his bed that he shared with his wife and just to go downstairs in the basement and spend the rest of his night with his side chick jacqueline i'm like um excuse me how long did y'all think that was gonna last at first and she just ignored them you know but you know how they you know we do pretend we don't see it and act like you know she just ignored them and just just act like you know she didn't see what was going on in her own house i mean how can she not get mad she was cool with it at first pretended like it was nothing serious was going on between the two maybe this like you know this little fling you know maybe she thought it was just gonna like fizzle out um, and instead of just ending this whole bullshit affair and just kind of like left them alone as Anthony and Jacqueline, they both continue to like form a relationship like without her or while living in the family's basement. And ex again, excuse me, like what is going on? What? So, tensions just kept building up in this house. I can't even imagine. It was like, Anne was like, look, get rid of the chick. Seriously. And Anthony was like, hell no, I'm not getting get rid of the chick. You brought her into our marriage, and you was cool with it before. So, don't switch up now and flake out on me now. Like I said earlier, Anne and Anthony had five kids who all ranged between the ages of 8 to 17. And one of Anne's daughters, um, a 13-year-old, she was apparently allowed to date. And as if this story couldn't get any more weirder, weirder, hold on, hold on, because it does, um, uh, Anne's 13-year-old daughter herself had an 18-year-old boyfriend who apparently Anne had absolutely no problem with. I mean, I'm going to just touch more on that subject later. But for right now, let's just focus on the topic at hand with the murder versus this other issue. Like, what? So anyway, Anne's, she got her husband and his young mistress, who they both had sexual relations with. They both shacking up living in the basement of, like, the house that they shared as husband and wife, all while raising their five kids under the same roof. Really? So, in what world? How is this going to work? I've heard of open marriages before, but damn. Anyway, Anne couldn't take that fiasco no more. Especially when Anne's daughter, uh, she overheard, she told Anne that she overheard um, her her father, basically Anne's husband, talking about giving Jacqueline a baby. The fudge. Enough is enough. And eventually, Anne started wanting both of them dead. And she wanted them dead enough to the point where she was serious and she started asking other people to do the job for her. One of the people that Anne recruited was Anne's 13-year-old daughter. Uh, his 18, well, Anne's 13-year-old daughter's 18-year-old boyfriend named Gabriel Ezekiel Struss. Even though uh, neither Gabriel, Anne, or her 13-year-old daughter had any history of criminal behavior, 
There was no history of mental illness for either one of them. There was no history of drug abuse or sex abuse on either of their behalf. But Anne, who worked for years as a personal assistant, uh, she was dead-ass serious about getting rid of the new woman and her new husband, who had caused so much tension and chaos in her life over the years. Through text messages, Anne and Gabe Gabrielle discussed how the murders were supposed to go down, and on the night of October the 4th, 2015, Anne and her 13-year-old daughter went to pack up, went to, they went to pick up Gabrielle, who lived in Annapolis. When they got to Anne's house, Gabrielle waited in the backyard for hours until the coast was clear, late at night, and everybody in the house was asleep. After Gabrielle was sure that Anthony and Jacqueline were asleep in the basement, Anne let Gabrielle in the house through the kitchen where she handed him a 380 handgun and a knife. Gabrielle stuck the gun in the front pocket of his hoodie and that's when he made his move. Gabrielle started his attack on Jacqueline first and started stabbing and slashing her while she slept. Waking up to a knife plunging into her, Gabrielle stabbed Jacqueline over 20 times and slashed her with that knife over 22 times, ending her life. Jacqueline screaming woke up Anthony, who was lying next to her, and Gabrielle wasted no time shooting him once in his head right in the temple, and he died instantly. Within a matter of minutes, everything was over. Anne and her 13-year-old daughter, they drove Gabrielle back to his home in Annapolis, and when they got back to Anne's home, Anne went in the basement and put a 45 caliber Sig Saver handgun in Anthony's hand to try and make it seem like the murders were some sort of, like, murder-suicide. Then Anne went upstairs and went on her night like it was business as usual. The next morning, Anne got up and started her day like she normally did. Anne got all four of her kids off to school like any other day. Except on this day, Anne's 13-year-old daughter stayed home from school because she was sick that day. And Anne left to go to the grocery store and she took her daughter with her. And when Anne got back from the grocery store around 1 p.m., that's when she decided to finally call 911 and report the murders to the police. And when the police showed up, Anne told them that she thinks something may have happened in the basement. She's all evasive, and when the officers found, went in the basement and found Anthony lying face up in the bed with a gunshot wound to the head and Jacqueline with numerous stab wounds, Anne acted like she was royally surprised about the whole thing, especially when the officers told her that they both were dead. Oh, it, it must have been a murder-suicide, Anne told the police officers. Anne told the police that the night before the murders, Anthony, Jacqueline, and herself, they had all three they had all three of them had been up, they was drinking, and they was looking on the internet for a new car for Jacqueline. And later she had heard uh, Jacqueline and Anthony like they was arguing in the basement and after that Anthony had locked the basement door and told the police that after that she and her daughter she went to the grocery store that morning and when they got back she found them both unresponsive and decided to call the police 
I've said it before in other podcast episodes. Y'all think police and homicide detectives are stupid. They don't have no sense and they haven't seen it all. Trust me. <laughs> they have seen it all. And they're not dumb. I mean, they see and hear this stuff all the time, every day. And they knew right away that this shit was not adding up. First of all, what? You see how you can just tell a, a total stranger like me what's going on? And I'm thinking, like, nah, how long is that going to last? Your husband and his mistress or his side chick or whatever y'all want to call it. Who are just free willy, will-nilly just living all it up in your basement. And you don't have a problem or issue with that? And they both end up dead? The detectives questioned Anne. They questioned her 13-year-old daughter. And they questioned Gabrielle and got all three of them had like different versions and different inconsistencies about what happened just right off the bat. And the detectives, they tested all three of them for gunshot residue and gunshot residue was found on Gabrielle and on Anne's clothes and her daughter's clothes. Even though all three of them said that they hadn't touched gun, touched like any guns or nothing. Anne even agreed to take a polygraph test and she failed miserably. Plus, the gun that Anne just coincidentally left at the scene, it didn't even match the gun that Anthony was shot with, nor did it match the 380 um, shell casing that was found at the scene. Like, duh. Plus, more importantly, Gabrielle confessed almost immediately um, to the murders and what he did, but he did put Anne as the mastermind or the person that put the whole plan together and all in motion. Completely filled with remorse and regret over what he had done, Gabrielle tearfully confessed to the detectives how Anne and his girlfriend made plans to take out the couple. At one point, through text messages, Anne and Gabrielle had discussed the different scenarios and the possible outcomes, like if they were caught and what they should say and what 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 would happen if they were questioned by the police and how they should all stick to their stories one of the possibilities that just that they discussed was even Anne's 13-year-old daughter accepting responsibility or blame for the murders and basically saying that she did it because they knew that she would get less prison time because she was still a minor and some of the text messages to Gabrielle and her daughter and warns Gabrielle not to talk to the police if they are ever questioned because he said that because basically she said that he will be sent to prison for life plus Anne promised the teen killer that if after he killed them both that he could move in a house with, with him with them and her daughter to live with like what a mess what a mess so according to articles in Baltimore Sun after Gabrielle commits the murders and the detectives could tell right away that all this was like some sort of setup. Like, Anne was like, oh, well maybe he killed himself because he was depressed because he couldn't work no more because he had all these back surgeries and blah, blah, blah. And he kept telling the detectives. Even with Gabriel confessing to everything, Anne kept saying that she was innocent. Despite Anne's ridiculous pleas of innocence, she, Gabriel, and Anne's 13-year-old daughter were all arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder and accessory after the fact. The arrest shocked the quiet community of Lothian and struck a nerve with Gabriel's brother, who gave a statement to the press that read, 
I know he hung out with that girl a couple of times. He's a teenager. He did what kids do. And Gabriel's grandfather gave a statement to the press that read, in his words, He's never done nothing, as I know of. Never. He's been manipulated into doing this. I just don't believe he would do something like that. I don't, I don't because the way I talk to him and stuff. I really don't believe it. Now, at first, Anne's lawyers, they tried the whole, the, the regular classic tactic of abuse. You know, the, the abuse defense and said that Anne was both physically and mentally abused by Anthony for over two decades. And that Anthony, he often tried to hurt her or her kids and, you know, the trauma and all that other stuff. You know, especially all of these changes during their non-traditional marriage, you know. Um, but Anne was mad about not only being locked up, but let's be honest. Anne was mad, like pissed over the whole ordeal. And she could not keep her mouth shut. During a jailhouse phone call to one of her family members, Anne had no idea the whole conversation was being recorded when she let it be known from jail how she really felt. Anne freely spoke about her involvement in the murders and left no question on how she felt about her husband and his side chick being dead. On tape, Anne is recorded saying in her words, even though we all think the world is a better place for him being gone and that her stupid fucking twit ass should have known something was gonna happen, Getting 12 jury jurors to see the same thing is a problem. Problem is, it's not only him. There's also a 24-year-old who's dead in my basement. She was a whore who moved into my house with me and my five kids. Her whore ass should have stayed, her, stayed up in fucking Michigan. She shouldn't have moved down here. She shouldn't have moved into my house. How could she possibly have thought that was going to go well? Wow. All this on tape now. Now, when Anne's lawyers heard about this recorded phone call, which pretty much ain't leave them with absolutely nothing to work with, in December of 2016, Anne's lawyers convinced Anne to take an Alfred plea deal where she would plead guilty to two counts of first-degree murder in exchange for 40 years for Anthony's murder and 60 years for Jack Jacqueline's murder, and five years for the gun um, conviction. And in May of 2017, Anne received her sentence. These two sentences were to be served concurrently, ensuring that Anne would never, realistically ever, get out of prison. After Anne received her sentence, which in an essence was a death sentence, the state's attorney released a statement that read, in his words, Anne Anastasi destroyed multiple lives by coldly planning these murders and manipulating children into executing her vicious plan. Were it not for Mrs. Anastasi at the helm of the scheme, the victims would be alive today. I do not expect that she'll ever set step foot out of a prison. She represents a different type of evil, because Gabriel Struss wielded the weapon. He was very much a puppet in Mrs. Anastasi, and to me, that is more sinister than just literally pulling the trigger. In June of 2016, 
Gabriel did plead guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and accepted a plea deal where he was sentenced to 60 years in prison. Gabriel did feel some type of remorse for what he did and through a note to Crime Watch Daily where this homicide was profiled, Gabriel released a statement saying that he'll always regret what he did and in his words he said, I thought what I did I was doing would make me a hero when in reality it only made me a monster. So many people were hurt because of my actions. I hope the victim's family can one day forgive me and understand how sorry I am. Now, what happened to Anne's 13-year-old daughter? As far as Anne's 13-year-old daughter, even though she was charged as a juvenile, she was still eventually placed in a uh, locked juvenile facility where she will be eligible for parole after she turns 21. Come on now. Now y'all know why this made uh, one of Maryland's most notorious revenge uh, vengeful murder cases because it's, it's obvious. Um, I look at it like this and y'all wonder why I'm not married. <laughs> I don't condone any type of homicide for any reason. I'm not saying that, but come on now. Um, I'm sorry y'all. Some of y'all going to like be mad at me about my assessment on this one, but this is, let's just look at the facts. Let's just look at the facts a little bit. You had a young chick who was being used by a married couple as basically a sex slave, probably a temporary threesome or whatever, who the husband eventually got feelings for, living up in his wife's basement as some sort of fantasy, like some sort of fantasy playhouse type deal, like side chick and all, all while your kids are up in the house. I'm sorry. Um, I'm 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 with Ann on that one. Uh, where did you do that? How long did she think this was gonna last? I mean, come on now, come on. And then they talking about making like a new family together. Um, my my thing is this. My 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 thing is this though. Like, if Ann felt that strongly about it and everything like that, like, why get somebody else? Like, why you ain't why you ain't do it? Why get somebody else to do it? Why do they always feel like they got to get somebody else to do that dirty work and drag them down to that level? Like, if you really felt that bad about it and, you know, that strongly, that should have been you, you doing that. Not getting, recruiting somebody else and your daughter and your, your boyfriend and all that. That's the type of punk shit I don't like. I mean, if you really felt that way, that strongly about it, why didn't you do it? I, I do agree with the state's attorney that, um, and... Is never most likely not coming home. But then again, I take that back. I take that back. I actually see her getting out one day. Because just from the simple fact of, you know, the mental state that this would have put any woman in. Come on. And, you know, y'all, like I said, y'all gonna hate me on that. Yeah, but what would you have done? Like, free ad. <laughs> no, come on now, seriously. What would you have done if your husband had done that? Like, and, you know, he's telling her to leave. From what I hear, the story also goes that he was telling Ann that she had to leave and she had to move and he put in her... Come on, what would you have done? I think her sentence is excessive, to be honest with you. I really do think her sentence is excessive. You know, I don't think... I don't... I think if the right attorneys got involved in this, then they can, you know, help her out. 
But um, I would love to sit her down and just be like, you know, I bet you she don't feel remorse for this. I bet you don't, she don't feel sorry for this. You know, I know plenty of women who would have wanted to do the same thing. She just actually did it. And now, yeah, by the way, um, a 13-year-old dating an 18-year-old. That says a lot about why the couple basically had a sex slave dead, like, living in their house like it ain't nothing in the first place. If y'all that open with statutory rape, no matter how mature the 13-year-olds, the 13-year-old may seem, it's still statutory rape. And if y'all, she, the parents were just that open with it just like that, that's a little weird, don't you think? I know plenty of mothers who allow this to go on because they feel like, this is going to keep them close to their kids, especially the females. And they're going to be like, they're going to go out and do it anyway. So, but still, that this that was that's not cool. I don't know why that that wasn't really addressed. Um, you know, mothers feel like their kids are going to be who they're going to be with anyway. But still, at, there at some point in time, you do have to be a parent. I mean, come on now. But. Yeah, I could, I could go on and on and talk about this particular case. Who don't remember when this happened? When I heard about it, I was like, wow. Yeah, this um, People Magazine picked this up. Um, um, Crime Watch Daily picked this up. And you can find a billion articles online about this. I tried to sum it up. The, it's so much detail. I summed it up the best way I could with, with as much as online is about this particular case. So, yeah, this was definitely chosen and selected as one of Maryland's most notorious uh, revenge cases occurring in Maryland. Moving right into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And like I said earlier, just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on notorious homicide cases that may have received a lot of attention and press from the media, this podcast also shines a light on the many, many, many homicide cases that we see in this state of Maryland that do not receive a lot of attention or a lot of attention in the press at all. If uh, these type of homicide cases are so common in Maryland that there's not a lot of time in this podcast to focus simply on just one of them. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report of it. You know, somebody got killed. Sometimes you may hear a name. You may or may not. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely staggering. It's unbelievably, really. It's obvious that homicide detectives, they can't do it all by themselves. You know, solving homicide cases is not like what you might see on TV like it is on the first 48 or... Um, the other crime shows in the state of Maryland is it's kind of like not that homicide detectives are often they overworked they're underpaid they're outnumbered especially in Baltimore City they're they're understressed and they they're flat out beaten down all the time but what happens in cases where you know nobody is talking at all where they have no evidence what happens when there are absolutely like no clues nobody talking um, whatever happens when, you know, no one is talking, there's no evidence, no clear motive, no clues, no nothing, or sometimes they have evidence and clues, but it still doesn't pinpoint to a particular person or a motive. Or what about those cases where because of the victim's past 
or their current lifestyle where it seems like the detectives they're not really trying to investigate the case because you get a sense or feeling that the detectives are not really trying to investigate it or move forward with what they have because the victim they might feel like the victim quote unquote they had it coming or their particular lifestyle may have brought on their murder what what happened to these type of homicides it seems like they were just brushed under the rug did the killer or killer simply did they just get away with murder it just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides not because nobody cares about them anymore but because the public simply forgot all about these homicides because we have been bombarded by new homicides and it's like we have become almost immune to these type of murders in this state well on this podcast although i do talk a lot about cases where the murder or case they did receive a lot of attention and notoriety on the flip side a focus is also on homicides cases that did not receive the amount of attention or the amount of press that they deserved. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 19-year-old Trey Scotland. On Tuesday, November the 4th, 2019, around 10.45 p.m., Prince George's County Police responded to a report of a man injured in a vehicle in the 1300 block of Fair Lakes Place in the Lake Arbor neighborhood of Bowie. And there, the police found 19-year-old Trey Scotland shot. Trey was rushed to an area hospital where he was pronounced dead. If you have any information you would like to provide for this unsolved homicide, please do the right thing and call 301 772-4925 or you can call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-411-8422 which is tips on your um, keypad or you can submit a tip online at pgcrimesolvers.com or you can use the P3 Tips mobile app which you can find in the Apple Store or the Google Play Store. Once again, the numbers that you can call to submit any information or tips regarding this unsolved homicide is the uh, Prince George's County Police Department at 301-772-4925 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-411-8477 or you can submit a tip online at pgcrimesolvers.com or use the P3 Tips mobile app in the uh, Apple Store or the Google Play Store. There is a reward of up to $25,000 for any information that can lead to an arrest or conviction for this unsolved homicide. And you can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Before I go into my usual routine of how you can access prior episodes, let me mention that if you tuned into me at all last season, I told my listeners that I was um, producing a true crime documentary myself that was based off of my very first episode 
the episode that profiled um, accused child killers Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinoza. And yes, the documentary is now currently available. It was supposed to be shown on Hulu, Tubi, etc., but because of the extreme graphic nature of the documentary involving the brutal and horrific beheading murders of three innocent kids, um, the network shied away from me. I'm not even going to lie. And they basically told me that the documentary was too graphic, like it was too much for network TV. Um, they even compared it to child porn. I was like, really? I mean, I could see any other type of homicide on network TV, but not this, really? I guess because the documentary does include the actual crime scene photos. I mean, I refuse to put, to pull these photos from the documentary for a number of reasons. Um, mainly, one of the reasons, mainly, namely because the brutal nature of the crime scene photos, they add to the emphasis of the innocence of Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa. Um, Adon Canella is about to be released anyway. And in order for me to fully emphasize the fact that they did not commit this horrible homicide, I had to show what was done uh, to these kids with no sugarcoating. And there's no way the victim's uncle and cousin committed these murders that were extremely brutal. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see who I believe these murders were committed by. Either way, um, the documentary is available via email only. Um, if you send me a link or send me a message via on um, my webpage, I will be able to email you the link for the documentary through an app called WeTransfer. Well, not even app, really. It's a link. So, um, either way... <sighs> I'm not going to lie, it's not for everybody's eyes. This documentary wasn't produced for to, for money or monetary gain or anything like that, but it was to make people aware of what is going on. It's not for everybody's eyes, and this documentary was not produced for financial gain or to upload any podcasts or downloads or anything like that, which is another reason why I didn't choose the network route. I can't and will not be censored. That's not what I'm here for, especially when it comes to, to crime and facts about an injustice that is currently going on. So in order to see the documentary, please visit my website at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com and Marilyn is spelled MDS. Um, you can subscribe to the mailing list by leaving your email address and send me a specific request that you would like to see the documentary and I will email you the the link to download the video through WeTransfer. But you must download the link. I think they give you 48 hours to do it. Otherwise, then you'll just have to re-email me all over again and I have to send you another link. But um, it is something to watch. I have to warn you though, the video is very graphic. As I stated, Hulu and Tubi and YouTube, even YouTube, they all told me that you know it was too graphic. It was just... They said it was very interesting, but it was very graphic. And also, because to be honest, I truly believe that with the state of the world that we're living in right now, I honestly believe in so many words, everybody was telling me nobody cares that these two illegal immigrants that they call them are still locked up serving life sentences for crimes that they did not commit. Nobody gives a fuck. And that's why I'm producing 
that's why I produced the documentary. To basically open up people's eyes because this is absolutely ridiculous. Well, and, and also while you're at it, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast in the first place. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then boom, out of nowhere, it's a podcast. But nope, that's not even hardly the truth. There is a real therapeutic message to this true crime world of gore and mayhem and blood and guts and all that. And if you click on the episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, so crazy, so wired, so fascinated with true crime. And while you're on my um, my webpage, uh, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, be sure to check out any prior episodes that you may have missed with all the different seasons that we have focused on, like um, suicide murders, um, the sick, twisted pedophile or sex-related type of homicides. That season, I had to take a break for a minute, or even um, parasite killings like uh, was the focus for last season. You can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murder is 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides Volume 1, and my uh, local bestsellers um, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. You can also check me out on Season 1 of Payback, which airs for the TV1 network. You can also see me on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Marilyn's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV1's Justice By Any Means, where I profiled um, my true crime story, or you can um, see me on TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, Peter Moses. Or um, you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers, Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong, who were also profiled for this podcast. I believe it was the uh, Parasite Killing Case. Or you can check me out on my latest article for The Crime Report, where I'm just also discussing, again, what led me to developing a true crime podcast. Last but not least, many of my listeners have been uh, messaging on how they can donate to this podcast. Um, on my website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, um, there is a donut, donut, <laughs> a donate icon on my website um, where you can contribute via PayPal, Anchor, coffee i think it is or the buy me a coffee icon links all you gotta do is click on that you can donate between what a dollar five dollars whatever to keep staying on but thanks so much for your support on that also please please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome another high profile homicide occurring in maryland it will be profiled it will be discussed and it will be examined on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been 
A Savage Life production.